Well, good morning, Calvary Church. It's good to be with you again this morning. I hope you really enjoyed your Easter celebrations last week. And today we're going to be starting a new series on Sunday mornings entitled Fully Engaged with God's Mission. And what better place to start than with one of the worst missionaries of all time, Jonah, right? And most of us know the story of Jonah. He was called to preach, but instead he chooses to flee from the Lord. Then he gets captured by the fish and gets resent on the mission. And then he goes and he preaches a great, to a great success, but then he is upset by the outcome. And so the message of the book of Jonah could be simply summarized, don't be like Jonah. So why consider the book of Jonah? Well, let me say it's not because I think that we're the worst missionaries of all time, like Jonah was. I think we're all greatly encouraged by what the Lord is doing in our midst as a church and excited about what the Lord would have for us in the future. So why the book of Jonah? It's one of my favorite books. I'm sure it's one of many of yours. But I think it's because the book of Jonah points out to the church um, a problem that continually plagues the church. And it's a book, it's a, a problem that the book of Jonah addresses for all of us. And that problem is spiritual myopia, spiritual nearsightedness, or in some cases, smug theology. It can actually grab a hold of any one of us at any time. And the way it expresses itself is in thinking and acting in ways that seek to limit God's blessings just to ourselves. Or another way to put it would be to simply that really the most important thing that we're concerned about is the well-being of our own church. That's spiritual myopia. So it could become a very negative message if we just looked at all of Jonah's failures in the book. And on the other hand, it could become a very positive message if we focused on God's triumphs throughout this book. But I hope it becomes a really inspiring set of messages and encouraging on the mission as we look both to God's successes and what He's doing in, this, in the storyline as, as well as Jonah's failures, because as we focus on what God has done in and through Jonah by the end of the story, it teaches us a lot about what it means to be His people, and it teaches us a lot about who God really is. And so... This is really the reason that the book of Jonah was composed. It was to teach his people about himself and that God is absolutely free to bestow his mercy and compassion on the world in any way he sees fit. And that we are to desire God's display of mercy on other people and work towards seeing that accomplished. Now, of course, in the fulfillment of the ages now that is upon us because of the coming of Jesus Christ, in the new covenant, that means the application of taking the gospel to all the peoples of the world. So we might say, well, I already believe that, and I'm sure you do, but we can still learn to know our God better and become more faithful in fulfilling our unique calling that God has given to us. And remember, Jonah would have said he believed all that too at the beginning. He, in fact, he continued to believe that, he says, throughout his experience. But it was only after the whole experience that he learned the lesson well and well enough to now have it taught to us. And so in today's passage, in chapters 1 and 2, we're taught to accept joyfully the Lord God's commission to take his salvation message 
to those who need his mercy. To those who need his mercy. And so the author of Jonah forces us to reconsider or to consider a common reality that God's people face. And that is in chapter 1, we see God will send his church in one way, but often the church will go the other way. And then in chapter 2, that God is gracious enough to rescue the church from this failure, bring us to repentance and thanksgiving, and then get us ready for what he really wants us to do. So let me pray for us, and we'll just take a look at the book of Jonah this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your greatness and your glory, your power, your rule over all things, for you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. And this is displayed most clearly in the book of Jonah this morning, that this is who you are, and that you have designs for mercy upon the peoples of the world. And we know that that mercy comes through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the promise and hope of eternal life. And we pray this morning that you would guide us in the Holy Spirit, that you would apply these words that you have written uh, to our hearts deeply, and that it would cause us to rejoice all the more in our Savior Jesus and to proclaim his gospel to the world. Amen. Well, let me give you a preview of the book of Jonah first, a little bit, background, the historical situation um, at the time of the events that transpire in the book of Jonah. In the country of Israel at the time, they've been undergoing economic and territorial expansion under Jeroboam II, the king, in the 8th century BC. And God's blessing upon his people during this time was so great that it was known to the people at the time as the Golden Age. And Jonah was one of the prophets during this time of expansion and economic prosperity and God allowing his people, blessing his people in such rich ways. So maybe there's a little bit of a clue there why it would be so hard to fulfill the commission that he's going to be given. And at the time of Jonah's travels in the book, it would have been about 770 B.C., the expansion had been going on for about 15 years. Now, at the same time, Israel was greatly afraid of Assyria and despised the nation. This is where the city of Nineveh is. And Assyria had been expanding too, but for two centuries. And Shalmaneser III began his western expansion that even touched the borders of Israel and the famous battle of, of Karkar in 853 B.C. And King Ahab fought against him. There were, of course, many other battles. But later kings of Assyria, um, under like Asherdan III, and the time we're considering in our passage, was focused more on the north, not really expanding toward Israel in the west. But shortly after Jonah's time, Tiglath-Pileser III would attack Israel and its allies, and Shalmaneser V would capture Samaria in 722 B.C., and later kings would even seek to capture Jerusalem. But then later on in the 7th century, another prophet that you're familiar with in the Bible, the prophet Nahum, he would preach judgment upon Nineveh, and God would bring it. And Nineveh of Assyria would be destroyed and fall in 612 B.C. to the Medes and to the Babylonians. Well, the book of Jonah then was written shortly after the events uh, by Jonah that took place in the 8th century B.C. in his journeys, or others think it was written much, much later. But it's a historical account for the purpose of teaching. This, that's the kind of history this is. It's a teaching history to correct the theology of God's people 
that God, again, to remind you of the purpose of the book, is free to bestow, bestow his mercy and compassion however he wants to do it, and upon whom, how, whoever he wants to give it to. And we are to desire God's display of mercy on others, and especially those in great need of it. So we might say that the book of Jonah even functions as a parable for us as God's people too, because the story of Jonah is the story of us. And this has been its use among God's people throughout the centuries. The book of Jonah, there are two main characters in the book. There's God and there's Jonah. And of course, we have a few others. There are the sailors and there are the Ninevites. And the conflict arises in the story because God has made a decision and a choice on how he's going to display his justice and his mercy, and then how it relates to the privileged position of God's people that they're experiencing at the time, and their expectations of who God should really be concerned about. I mean, you can look ahead in the book, if you'd like, to chapter 4, verse 2 and verse 11, and you can see that this book is all about God's freedom and showing mercy to the nations. And we'll read that a little bit later. But it's not difficult to see the application for us today in the fullness of the gospel. We're supposed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the peoples of the world. And we need to expand our view of what our calling is as the church in the world. And so we're looking at the book of Jonah in this way in our series to be fully engaged in God's mission. And the outline of the book goes like this. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that God sends His church to preach His message to the nations. In chapter 3, we learn that God uses His church to bestow His compassion on the nations. And finally, in chapter 4, that God teaches His church to desire His mercy for the nations. So let's turn to the book of Jonah now and learn to accept joyfully the Lord's commission to take His salvation message to those who need His mercy. And today we're actually going to look at all of chapter 1 and 2. And we're going to read the story as we go, so don't read ahead, because we want to experience the story as it unfolds before us this morning. So in chapter 1, we see that God sends His people one way, but often in rebellion, they go the other. That's chapter 1. And so the story begins in verses 1 through 3, where the Lord calls, but Jonah flees in rebellion. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord calls Jonah and says, arise and go to, Gen- go to Nineveh. But Jonah arises and he flees. He doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction. Nineveh would be to the northeast and he goes down to the southwest to Joppa outside of Israel and proceeds as far west as he can possibly go. Presumably, Joseph, or Jonah was a prophet that was faithful during the expansion, but now he's rebelling. The Lord God called him and commissioned him to go to the great city of Nineveh, and he was to preach God's judgment upon that city for its wickedness. And so the first question that arises to us as we read this story in this text, the scripture, is that you would think, what a great commission. If you're Jonah, I get to go to our enemies, our political enemies, and I get to preach judgment upon them. 
So why doesn't he go? It's because Jonah knows God well enough that if he's being sent to preach judgment before it comes, it's probably likely that God's going to seek out their repentance and then he'll proceed to spare them from his judgment. And in fact, that is the case. So if you look ahead in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. So Jonah didn't want to go preach to the enemies that he hated because he doesn't want God to have mercy on his enemies. I mean, consider the enormity of the rebellion of Jonah. It's highlighted in these first three verses in the introduction to the book by key phrases. Did you notice that Tarshish is mentioned three times, that that's where he's going. It's mentioned twice that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord and then also in the word down. Tarshish was somewhere in the far west of the Mediterranean. We don't yet know exactly where it is. But this journey on the ship with all of its stops along the way would probably take at least a year and it would cost a lot of money. And so Jonah is going to a lot of trouble and a lot of expense to get away from the Lord's commission. He doesn't want to hear from God anymore. He wanted to get as far away as possible from God's purposes so that he would put himself in a position where he could not be used. He wants no part in God's plan for the people of Nineveh. So that's the introduction to our story. We have the two characters, the two main characters, God and Jonah, and this is the situation. God has a plan for mercy, and Jonah doesn't like it. So next, the Lord sends a storm, and Jonah sleeps. So in verses 4 and 6, the story continues, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down for, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the Lord pursued Jonah. He hurled this wind upon the sea and causes a great storm and the sailors on board take emergency action immediately and they cry out to all their different gods that they would worship. This is an international crew. There'd be all sorts of polytheists on board and syncretists and they begin jet jettisoning the cargo and anything that they can possibly do to save their lives. And Jonah, who's the cause of the storm, notice where he went again. He went down in the storyline to hide in the ship away from God and his calling. He's in a deep sleep, and it's likely caused by his spiritual depression. Certainly, he's under God's judgment. He's given up his career as a prophet. He's abandoned his people and his God. He has no desire to pray. He doesn't care. He would just as soon die. His great rebellion has led to great spiritual consequences. Now, perhaps some of the sailors then, as they're jettisoning the cargo, they find Jonah down there sleeping, and they report him to the captain. And the captain is surprised that Jonah is not doing anything to help. And he says to him, did you see the word and hear it? Arise and pray. This word arise is a nightmare to Jonah because that's what God said to him. 
to arise and go to Nineveh. And so the captain speaks the original word to him again, and Jonah probably sees the irony in the situation, but he doesn't pray and he doesn't care. The pagan captain asks Jonah to pray to his God, for he might be able to help them. And of course, he could. Notice in the story that the unbelieving pagans take better action than a believer in the true God to address the situation, although they pray to gods who are no gods and have no power. Well, then the Lord God reveals that Jonah is the cause of the problem, and he has to admit it to them. And so we then read in verses 7 through 10, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, for he had told them. The sailors knew that somebody had to be at fault for such a violent storm, and so they, they use the casting of lots, similar to throwing dice or stones, and through a process of elimination, then their lot falls upon Jonah. And so God is superintending even this divination practice, and he singles out Jonah in front of them. And so then they urgently pepper Jonah with five questions because they want confirmation of what the lots have told them and an explanation for this dreadful situation. And Jonah answers their questions. He admits his guilt, but notice how he identifies himself. He says he's one who fears the Lord. He fears Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. He is asserting that this is the true God. His God is the God above all so-called gods, and that he is the one who's created and controls all things. He also says he fears God. Obviously not. This is only his creed, but not his practice, at least not now. Jonah's resigned to his rebellion and to receive God's judgment for it. Well, now the sailors are even more afraid because Jonah claims that he serves the one true God who's responsible for this situation that they're in, and he's doing nothing about it. Jonah is the cause, and he doesn't care. And so they ask him, probably in amazement and indignation, how he could do this to them. If his God is so powerful, what a fool to rebel against God and then not repent in this situation, and how right they are. Jonah had told them previously that he was fleeing from his God, from the presence of Yahweh. Well, now the sailors knew the severity of the situation, the greatness of who this God is that Jonah identified and that he worships, and the greatness of Jonah's rebellion against him. And so then the Lord God judges Jonah, and Jonah presumably dies in verses 11 through 16. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you for that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Hmm. So the sailors want to know what to do, obviously, to make this storm calm. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And Jonah tells them, notice the word that again is used, hurl me into the sea. Just like in verse 4, the Lord hurled the wind onto the waters and the sailors hurled the cargo into the ocean. Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. And he explains that this will serve the purpose of the storm and God's pursuit after him. Well, finally, Jonah takes at least enough responsibility that he's willing to give up his life to save other people's. Yet notice that Jonah is nowhere near repentance and prayer to the Lord. The sailors are much more noble than he is, and this action to them just seems way too severe. And so they don't want to be liable for murder, so they figure, well, what if we just get Jonah back to the shore? And apparently they're not too far out, and they row as hard as they can to get him back there. But it isn't going to work because the Lord God commands the seas and the winds and disallows the efforts because the Lord wants Jonah in the sea. So the sailors eventually give up this rowing and they cry out to the Lord God. And for your information, this is the only example in the Old Testament of pagans actually praying to Yahweh. They realize that their only hope is to cast Jonah overboard and they don't want the liability. And so in prayer, they make it very clear to God that he's accountable for what's going to happen. It's ultimately his action By them throwing Jonah overboard, they are just doing exactly what he wants, his good pleasure. And so in verse 15, they hurl Jonah toward his death, it seems, to his watery grave. And immediately, the seas calm. The sailors are awestruck. Jonah was right. If they threw him overboard like God wanted, the sea would become calm. And it caused them to greatly fear the Lord God. And they made a sacrifice, and they vowed that once they got back to land, they would make lavish sacrifices to him. These sailors, you see, would never forget this incident the rest of their lives. So either Jonah was inadvertently used to convert them, or they just simply added the Lord God to their permanent God list to worship for the rest of their lives. It's not clear, but the reader is supposed to think about the incident in this way, If God does this with pagan sailors on one ship through Jonah's disobedience, think about what he could do in the city of Nineveh through Jonah's obedience. In fact, what could he do with the nations of the world with his people's obedience to the commission? What about the church and our mission in the world? Are there any People you don't like, you'd rather not they receive the gospel, but just go to hell. Enemies, political enemies. We know what our commission is. It's the great commission in Matthew 28, 18, and 20, and we looked at it last week when we were at Easter. Go, make disciples of all nations. And the way we do that is by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for our sins and he was raised for our justification, that by faith in him alone, we can get full forgiveness of our sins, be free, and have eternal life. 
God sends his church to preach his message to the nations. There are questions at this point in the story that do loom large and have to be asked. And of course, the most basic one that we all must face is, are we in mission rebellion? Now, maybe not, and probably most of us know, but maybe some who are listening this morning, you are in mission rebellion. In fact, as a part of a church once, was a very interesting story. You know, people leave churches for all sorts of reasons, but I'd never heard this reason before. And uh, so this one older couple decided they were leaving a certain church, and I asked them why, and they said, because this church is too committed to missions. I'm scratching my head. It's like, what did I just hear? Like, this is a Christian church. This is an evangelical church. We obey the Great Commission, but yet it was just too much missions for them. And I know the couple well enough to know that's because they wanted a country club-style church. They didn't want a church that was actually going to go do something. So if you know you're fleeing, well, then you know what to do as well, because you're not going to escape. Another lesson we might think about is, are we fully engaged in the Great Commission as the Lord has uniquely called us, each one of us, and uniquely called us as a church? Are we fully engaged? You know, because God always has something next for us. You know, we've had great experiences with Him, great experiences with the mission, great experiences in doing His will and serving Him in a variety of ways, but you know, there's even more that He has for us. So we should be praying for the progress of the gospel around the world, supporting the progress of the gospel, and taking action in our own lives to be involved right here and now, and even other places where God gives us opportunity. And then a third item to reflect on, I think, at this point is that You know, once we do fully engage, or maybe we've been more engaged in the past and we know these things pretty well, there are struggles that come from obedience. You know, it's not always just easy to obey. There's challenges involved, and we need to ask God as we're obeying and fulfilling the calling on our life to give us more strength and more power to more of His grace, because when you think about completing this great commission, sacrifice is involved. You know, obedience is going to involve the loss of resources because missions cost money. It's going to require energy, and it's going to require that we take the focus off of ourselves because it's not possible to put all of our energy both toward ourselves and toward other people. It's going to often require, when we obey the Lord, to proclaim the gospel, ridicule and persecution. People aren't going to like you. If you want to be liked, don't go on mission. You can lose respectability by joining in the mission. It can also produce obedience uncomfortability because once you start engaging more and more in missions, life gets messier because you're now going after the people that Satan thought that he had such a tight hold on. And you know, perhaps one of the toughest things for churches in my experience has been the changes that it brings to church life. Because so often in churches, this is the way we all are, is we like the way church is for us. And that's the lot of so many. But things change when we engage in the mission more fully. So may God pursue us and overtake us and give us more of a heart for His mission so that we will joyfully accept the commission He gives us and take the salvation message to those who are most needy. Well, in Jonah, we see how it happens, how God gets his attention. He rescues his people from their spiritual myopia, from their rebellion, and he brings them to the point of repentance and then gets them set up, reset, ready to go 
because the commission is still going to come forward. And so then we read in verses 17 and verse 1 of chapter 2 that the Lord God rescues Jonah in a miraculous way. Verse 17 begins, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Well, the Lord God appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah, to rescue him from perishing. The Lord isn't done with Jonah yet. Death would not be an easy escape for him. And the great fish would keep Jonah alive for three days and three nights. And we're supposed to understand this rescue as a glorious rescue from the dead. He's being in the sea and being in the, in the, for three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish is being as good as dead, you know. That's the point. And when Jesus would refer to this example of Jonah, he's declaring about the resurrection. His resurrection was even greater than Jonah's because it was a real resurrection. It was a resurrection from the dead. Jesus was actually dead and in the tomb. And that's what we looked at last Easter, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And then he was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, many have tried to explain how certain types of fish could do this and people could still survive. In fact, you can read various accounts and tales, many of them, I think, tall tales. Um, and you can find even maybe some amazing situations. Presumably, people who are on the search for this kind of a fish, they somehow think it's supposed to make the Bible more appealing to the skeptic or to our skepticism. And perhaps it happened that way. If God so, if so, God placed the fish at the right time in the right place and commanded it to swallow and preserve Jonah. No problem. But the answer that is just as likely and more likely is that it was a specially created fish just for this purpose. And this kind of miracle, miracle is only a problem for people who dismiss miracles out of hand. But either way, whether it's the less supernatural or the more supernatural it's a great miracle. We're not given details on the fish, and one great preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, said, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they've failed to see the great God. Well, after delaying almost too long, Jonah finally prays to God. Jonah finally comes to his senses, and he prays in repentance and thanksgiving and readiness. And Jonah's prayer here that's recorded is the prayer from the fish immediately after his experience in the water of sinking down to the bottom. And of course, it's recorded later. So Jonah now prays to God in repentance and thanksgiving and in readiness in verses 2 to 9. So in verse 2, Jonah extols the Lord for his rescue. He was drowning. And, and he finally cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. He expected to die and have no escape, but yet the Lord saved him. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. In verses 3, then through 6a, Jonah recounts his being cast by God into the sea by the, sa by the sailor's hands. And so, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land 
whose bars closed upon me forever. So you see the picture of what Jonah is praying. He's recounting how when he was first thrown into the sea, the current swirled around him and the waves crashed upon him when he was on the surface of the sea and his death had begun. He feels expelled by the Lord and rightfully so, but he instinctively looks to the temple again and it signifies God himself and the place of his earthly presence. So here we see a seed of hope yet for a new Jonah. Then he sinks down into the water and the weeds become wrapped around his head and he describes his journey, notice, downward to the base of the mountains and the sea to be imprisoned there forever. He's recounting his drowning, his death, and his journey downward as far as he could possibly go. But in verses 6, then B and through verse 9, God amazingly brings him up from the depths of this pit through the great fish. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The impossible has happened. God has saved him, and he still intends to use him. While Jonah's life is slipping away, he prayed, he repented, he vowed to do God's will, and God heard his prayer. Jonah's saying, in effect, okay, I'll go to Nineveh, and I'll obey you, and I'll see what you're going to do. Probably your salvation. So he was ready to go to the pagans and teach them to know the Lord. In verse 8, he speaks about those who worship idols and how vanity it is, and how by doing so, they really forsake the faithfulness of the Lord, and they lose out of course, on the Lord's kindness toward them. Jonah knows how Israel did this and how the nations are even trapped more so in the worship of vain idols. So now Jonah has a desire to go to Nineveh, to any nation, to preach to them the word of the Lord, and he wants them to cast away their idols, stop worshiping false gods, and experience the fullness of the blessing there is with knowing the, only, the one and only true God. So in confirmation of repentance, he would do what the sailors did earlier, notice. Jonah would perform sacrifice and he would vow to the Lord. Jonah has repented a full and full of thanksgiving and he's ready to do the Lord's will. And he concludes his prayer with the exaltation, salvation is from the Lord. And he means this in the fullest possible sense, both in a physical salvation from your experiences here as well as the spiritual expression that salvation comes from the Lord. It's the, only the Lord can save, and the Lord decides freely to save. We know, though, that Jonah's attitude would change again. He says this is what he wants, but when he actually sees God's mercy on the Ninevites, well, that's another story. That's chapters 3 and 4. He's not fully penitent now or then, but eventually he would be and so we have the book of Jonah to learn from him. So the book of Jonah is saying the same thing to its readers and to God's people of all ages that our passionate desire should be to go to the nations and teach them to know the Lord, to forsake their idols and to give up on their false religion and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God then releases Jonah to his original mission in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish... And it vomited Jonah up 
out on the dry land. So now the Lord commands the fish, and it vomits Jonah back in the land of Palestine somewhere. But one, you, know, you can't read the story without seeing the, the contrast between this, this sublime, beautiful, glorious prayer of Jonah, and then God's answer to it is vomit. In fact, it's not in English, we would say this is a great place to put the word hurl. Right? It's another hurl. There's a lot of hurling going on in this passage. But of course, it's not the same Hebrew word. But nevertheless, this is how the first half of the book of Jonah ends. Jonah's back where he started. And he would be recommissioned, as we read then next in verses uh, 1 and 2 of the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. But then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So he'll get recommissioned. So after chapter 1, you know, we discuss mission rebellion, and so after chapter 2, we have to discuss mission readiness. You see, there was one church I was involved in at one time. They, they weren't ready, and their main focus was their theology. They wanted to get everything exactly right. Nothing wrong with that. They spent a lot of time studying theology and writing papers and these types of things to make sure that they got the gospel clear. And they wanted their church to be this bastion of truth. And they were focused entirely upon themselves. But then God made them ready because eventually a pastor came along and helped them see that the theology was great, but where's the application of that theology? And the application of what they said they believed would be to go and to do the mission that God has given the church, and the church changed. And they became a missional church. You know, we need to renew and recommit ourselves to what we know is God's will for us. We need to constantly be renewed in our desire, which is the Lord's desire that's expressed clearly in Scripture, that the nations need to know the Lord. And yes, we can say we believe that, but you know, we all know it's true that the passion of that can evaporate so quickly in our souls. And so it's an ever-present need. The book of Jonah is always relevant to us and the application to our lives and to the churches that we're a part of. The goal is summarized by the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2.14, where he tells us the end of the story and says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So may God rescue us from any rebellion, or maybe it's not outright rebellion, but maybe it's apathy, apathy toward it. And bring us to repentance and thanksgiving and readiness, or maybe it's just simply a new readiness to accept the Lord's commission to take His salvation message to those who need His mercy. Now, I want to remind us that the book of Jonah is a historical account, but it's a historical account of a certain type, and that is it's a teaching type. It was written that way, very quite simply, and, and the purpose of that is we're supposed to now look at the book of Jonah. We're to look at Jonah, and we're to see the church. We're supposed to look at Nineveh and see the nations. We're supposed to look at 
our Lord God and see that it's the same Lord God who is calling and commissioning us. It means that it is written with the intended purpose to teach the church an ever-applicable lesson that God is absolutely free to bestow His mercy and His compassion on the world in whatever way He chooses. And we are supposed to align our desires and desire God to display mercy and work towards seeing that accomplished. The message of the book of Jonah forces us to examine our theology and our expression of it in our attitudes and in our actions. Mission rebellion is shown in Jonah's theology and is acted out in his flight from God and, and the commission he was given in that one instance. Jonah's theology really was that of wanting to limit God's blessings to the people of Israel alone. And that's what the people at the time expected too and enjoyed. Jonah's theology and practice was that he only wanted to pro proclaim the word of God to the people that he chose to give it to and not go out. So if our theology were to lead us to smugness or wanting to limit God's blessing to ourselves or being focused so much on ourselves that we can't see anything beyond ourselves, not evangelizing, well, then we have a heretical theology just like Jonah did. But we don't want to miss out on the blessings of God and seeing His grace and mercy to the nations. We want to be fully engaged in God's mission. That's why we read the book of Jonah over and over and why it speaks so much to our souls and to us personally. So your, our assignment this week, if you choose to accept it, is to read the book of Jonah daily at home and talk about the book of Jonah and meditate on it and pray over it and ask God to teach you its lesson for the church and for yourself. You know, it's a really short book. And then pray, I'll pray that you be blessed and motivated and compelled by it. We're going to be looking at Jonah in a very short series. It's only going to take three weeks to get through it as we talk about what it means to be fully engaged in God's mission. And there's so much more to the story. I mean, this is just the beginning, and it's a very long beginning. It takes more than half the book to get us set up for the main point of the story. But let's not be like Jonah, who's the worst missionary of all time, when he was the worst missionary of all time. But he learned his lesson in Nineveh, and that's why he wrote it up, so that it would be there for the church of all ages. So let us be eagerly involved and engaged in teaching the nations to know the Lord, the one true God, and His eternal Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sends His church to preach His message to the nations. So let us arise and go to Nineveh. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise You that You are the God of the heavens and the earth that you are the God of a great redemption and that you have chosen to express your mercy and your salvation and your love upon us, a steadfast love from you that we experience every day of our life. We enjoy you and the blessings that you bring into our life and rightfully so and give you praise for that. But Lord, we ask also that you would cause to arise in our hearts an even stronger and deeper love for others to know your mercy to know your salvation, to know peace with you, to have their sins forgiven, to know what it means to walk daily through life with a relationship with the God of the universe. And we pray these things so that you would continue 
to enrich, to bless, and to strengthen, to encourage, to, to even cause us to become more mature in our faith and in our theology and our practice. And we pray all these things for Jesus' glory. Amen.